Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 206. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, we talk about three things very near and dear to both my personal and professional heart. We're talking craft beer, we're talking journalism, and we're talking politics. That's right. I've got Denver Business Journal reporter, Ed Sealover. Now, I've worked in media relations and public relations for more than a decade now. And when you're starting out, and when you're speaking on the record or you're talking to a reporter, it can be very intimidating. It's one of those things that not your average person does on a regular basis because you're kind of talking with stakes, right? Anytime you're talking on the record, people tense up. People tend to freeze up a little bit. I've seen it happen because I've done media training now for years. You'll see the most amiable, personable, wonderful person. You point a camera at them or you turn a tape recorder on and they go, (gasps) and they just clam up. It's really weird. It's a hard thing to get used to. It's a different rhythm. But having done it all these years now and having cultivated relationships with journalists, it's like anything else. There are good ones. There are bad ones. Most of the people are in between. Ed Sealover at the Denver Business Journal just happens to be one of my all-time favorites. The reason for that is his writing is great, number one. Number two, he's kind of a polymath. He's kind of Ed of all trades here at the Denver Business Journal in the way I'm John of all trades because he's covering like six beats. He's covering government. He's covering healthcare. He's covering economic development. He's covering tourism. He's covering hospitality. And he's covering beer. That is an absolute ton of beats. And you typically won't find someone unless they're like a general assignment reporter with that many specialized areas of coverage. But that's Ed. And in addition to intersecting with Ed professionally, as I have a number of times, he's been on the radio show for one of my biggest clients. I've talked to him about various issues going on at the Capitol that pertain to some of my clients. I've also run into him personally. I've seen him at Denver Beer Festivus a couple of times now. I've seen him at Great American Beer Festival. We have very similar interests when it comes to beer, and so the whole first half of this conversation is just us talking about beer. You're going to hear a ton of breweries mentioned here, some of Ed's favorites, some of my favorites, some of our favorite beers. It's a really fun, fast-moving conversation. And then we talk politics. We talk about how Colorado's different. We talk about journalism, the state of the industry, where it's going from here. If you're a young person and you're considering getting into journalism, how might you do that now and how does that differ from the path that Ed took? It's a fascinating conversation with someone I absolutely adore, so I'm thrilled to be able to bring this episode to you. I'd like to give a quick plug for John of All Trades social media. That's J-O-A-T pod across platforms. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. And there's something a little bit different on each one of those platforms. 
on Facebook and LinkedIn, you'll find the first job series. Those go up every Monday. I talk to my guests in two separate interviews. One, the long form that you're about to hear now. And earlier in the week, I talked to them about whatever their first job was. You may remember John's audio resume series where I talked about every job I've had. I love talking about the journey. We don't always spend a lot of time on that first job, so you get a little mini episode at the beginning of the week. That goes up on Facebook and LinkedIn, as I said, on Mondays. Twitter is where I cultivate all sorts of weird stuff. Lots of strange retweets, a little bit of political stuff, and you'll find all my untapped check-ins. So if you want to know what I'm drinking, it's all on Twitter. Check it out there. Pinterest is a little bit like an abandoned strip mall right now, and so is Snapchat, but that's the way it goes. Instagram is the real gem here. If you like photos of cats, that's where I do my worst coworker ever series. Since I work from home, I've got two annoying, meowing jerk faces up in my business every day, so there's lots and lots of cat photos. So tons of content on the John of All Trades social media pages. That's J-O-A-T pod across platforms. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Episode 206 features Ed Sealover. He is a reporter at the Denver Business Journal. He's had a 24-year-long and going career in journalism. He talks about going from Annapolis, Maryland, to Evanston, Illinois, to Arkansas, to South Carolina, to Colorado Springs, to Denver. There's a ton here. This episode flies by in the blink of an eye. So let's get to it. 206, Ed Sealover, reporter, Denver Business Journal, starts right now. Pun is in my fridge beer wise because we had a big party on New Year's Eve and so it's a collection of what I had and what uh, what people brought. What um, others brought? Yes, yeah. I mean, actually, what what I've, what others brought is is quickly going away. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but I've got a little bit of everything um, from uh, a Marionberry Sour by Paradox Beer to a, oh, yeah, a six pack of of Melvin's new uh, Hoppy Pilsner. To I haven't had that yet. How is it? Um, it's good. It's good. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for the next great post ski or post hike beer. Uh, and that, that one's not quite Colorado Kolsch in that respect, but it's, oh. it's up there. So wait, Colorado Kolsch from Steamworks. Steamworks? Yeah. Durango. Durango. That's my absolute favorite. Crispest, tastiest, uh, easiest drinking beer after a good hike. I love that. Okay. When you espouse opinions like that, do the breweries you're covering ever get pissed? Uh, no, because, because generally the opinion is ju- is positive, and so sometimes I, I'm sure there would be some of them say, "Why don't you love me as much as you love <laughs> Colorado Coles or everything right. that Great Divide makes?" But uh, but no, I, I I don't I don't hear a ton of feedback. Uh, I, I had an interesting one where I got sent some beer this summer by Payette Brewing Company out of Idaho, which was entering the state, and okay. and they asked me to write about it, and I wrote about it pretty honestly that it wasn't very good, um, <laughs> and uh, and and I didn't hear back from them and that's i guess the best i can ask for you ask me to do something sure. honest and and if you don't like it just move on <laughs> yeah well then too bad i guess um as far as crispest beer uh my favorite is i love a good hoppy pills mine's uh, howdy by the post Ah, that's a nice one too. I yes. love that so much. And then you ever go down there and get like a little Nashville hot chicken and get get a towny ale with it? Amazing. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a unique brewery that developed itself around food rather than as food as an adjunct. So mm. it's um, they they certainly know what they're doing with the food you're pairing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very very exciting. How did you or? or a different question. When did you start writing about craft beer? I started writing about uh, beer in 2003 when I was with the Gazette. I had been with the okay. Gazette a little over two years then, uh, the Gazette in Colorado Springs. And um, we had a wine columnist 
and I just mustered up all the uh, the courage I had to go to our entertainment editor and said, we need a beer columnist. And she said, yes, yes, we do. And so I started writing what was then a monthly column that worked its way into a blog uh, that kind of went every two weeks. And um, when I left the Gazette, um, I took the blog with me. Um, they, they didn't mind that um, because I didn't have anything I could write at the Rocky Mountain News. They already had their beer reporter. Right. But as that turned out, it was a, just a quick seven and a half month side gig for me anyway <laughs> um sadly and uh and so kind of i kept the blog up after that when i landed here uh, that was uh, I, I guess i'm a terrible negotiator because i didn't ask for more money than i was being offered but i said i for want this the, content you're doing right i want the beer beat if i come here and and our old editor neil westergaard said well we've never really covered beer i said well now you do and so it's a it's given me a chance to keep covering beer in a whole new way here really looking yeah. at the business side of it well it's terrific reporting and that's a perfect segue. This is Ed Sealover, reporter at the Denver Business Journal. And name your beats real quick. My beats are government, economic development, transportation, tourism, hospitality, and the beverage industry. Good God, man. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Look, we, we, we're a small staff paper. We all juggle a lot of balls here. I just happen to have some of the, uh, the, the more oddball beats that are, that are crammed into one person. Well, it reminds me of if you ever watch the uh, Westminster Kennel Club dog show or the American Kennel Club, there's like, you know, the terrier group, right? And the right. working group and the herding group. And then there's the non-sporting group. You are the non-sporting group of reporters. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't put me in the toy group of reporters. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Well, well, sometimes I think uh, if you're writing about beer or something that you enjoy, I remember I think it was Dave Krieger saying at the Rocky Mountain News that the sports department was always looked at as the toy aisle. (laughs) Well, it's because it's so much fun. And I think people look at it from the outside like, oh, I'd I'd love to just cover baseball for a living. But uh, but, you know, having had friends who did that, I realized that 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 then becomes a job. And some people who love sports and cover sports will say, I'll never pay to get into a sports event again. Right. You know, I uh, I I happen to love covering beer and I don't mind drinking beer and writing about beer when I get off. Um, I can tell you, I don't I don't spend a lot of time going home and and popping on C-SPAN and and watching (laughs) politics. I get enough of that at work. But uh, but beer, I'll I'll go through all parts of my life with. Well, that's sort of uh, what's interesting to me is you and I have intersected professionally and personally because you cover the Capitol. Some of the clients I do have business at the Capitol, obviously. So we've talked in that way. You've been on the radio show that we've done for one of my clients. And then we just run into each other a lot at beer festivals because that's sort (laughs) of that's my interest, too. And uh, we most recently were at uh, what was that Festivus? Yeah, Denver Beer Festivus. That one's my favorite. It's it's a great festival because it really draws out. I think it's about two thirds of the breweries in Denver, and everyone wow. seems to put up the put on their A game because they're, they're it's their friends and neighbors that are around them. And they <laughs> want to stand out among them. So yeah, that's that one's a blast. That's probably one of my five favorite festivals in Colorado. Yeah, that's a good one. I saw you at GABF too. I can't believe we actually ran into each other in that cavernous hall. But. Yeah, the, I mean there's. Only sixty-two thousand people that go to that thing over a four-day period. So, so sometimes I, I will run into people repeatedly there, and sometimes I will try to meet friends there and not be able to. Yeah, no, so, it's yeah. it's impossible. Question for you because uh, I got into craft beer in Fort Collins because I went to CSU, and you could get Fat Tire or Sunshine or Ninety Shilling or Easy Street. Those were the big four that we drank all the time, and occasionally like Cutthroat Porter and stuff. But 
that was sort of my gateway into craft beer. Do you remember what your gateway beers were? Yeah, my gateway beers. I got into craft beer when I was in college. I went to college from 91 to 95, and I was at Northwestern University in Evanston. And Evanston First Liquors, even in the early days of what was then called the microbrew <laughs> right. um, had a mix of six cooler. And so while everybody right. else was buying you know, 30 packs of natural light, I would save up my money for my work-study job, and I would go down there and try things. Uh, the beers that really hooked me uh, originally – a Beta Turbo Dog. Abita, uh, wow. Yeah, Abita's, I didn't know Abita's been th- around that long. Uh, yeah, Abita's original porter. Uh, they, they were putting that out uh, nationally, even in the early 90s. And Sam Adams Honey Porter, which is now uh, an extinct beer. They no longer make that. Those were the two that I, I really took to and, and bought over and over again. Okay. So it was uh, for me, and it's funny because now I'm more of a, an experimental guy, like either a big hop or a sour person, mm-hmm. but it was the dark beers that really made me a fan of the craft beer movement. That's interesting because I, I find similar to gateway craft beers, there's always a gateway IPA. Like people are, they're like, I hate IPAs. You know, I don't like that mouthful of dandelion sort of feel. But then there will be an IPA. They go, wow, this is really good. What is this? And then they're drinking nothing but IPAs for like the <laughs> next year and a half. Um, for me, that one was um, uh, Single Wide IPA by Boulevard. Ah, okay. Where I really okay. turn the corner on IPAs. I go, God, this is really, really good. Um, do you remember? Because I, I find people are tend to be more malt or more hop. And in your case, do you? The, the dark beers were the entry point. Do you remember at what point you're sort of like, yeah, I want a mouthful of hops? I, I don't remember exactly when. I mean, I, I think after I got out of college, I went down to uh, I went down to Arkansas for two years to work at a paper there in South Carolina for three and a half years. So the beer options were somewhat limited. But I, I remember reaching out for whatever uh, hoppy beers I could find. I mean, the one that uh, that has always been my go-to, even though it's only been around 12, 13 years, is Odell IPA. Oh, um, that, that was the one that I think when it came out and when I tried it, converted me from, I'm going to drink some hoppy beers to, oh, the hell with it. I am just drinking a lot of <laughs> Hoppy beers. Like, I just want that taste over and over again. Uh, I will tell you one of the interesting stories, and I think maybe this was uh, a little bit of my uh, my IPA gateway. Um, my senior year in college for my magazine article writing class, we had to do a big final project. And I pitched a couple of very serious ideas to my classmates. And then I pitched the idea, hey, I want to look into this growing microbrew industry. And they said, do that. We don't <laughs> care about these serious ideas you have. Um, and so for that project, I got to spend, and this is how how small the movement was back in 94, 30 minutes sitting down one-on-one with Greg Hall, the owner of Goose Island Brewing Company, as a college student, just talking about his nascent brewery and this movement. And so Honker's Ale, uh, which was a big thing back then, uh, was probably the first time I I tasted hops and said, oh, yeah, I got to come back to this over and over again. Wow, Goose Island, and one of the first scooped up by AB InBev, too. It was the absolute first. In fact, it, it preceded everybody else by about four years. And I, I remember the attitude then was, well, this is kind of weird. And, and everyone kept drinking it, thinking, well, it's not quite craft. And, and it was only after AB started scooping up another dozen breweries that I think you saw the craft beer movement turn against Goose Island as well as all of the other AB-owned breweries. Yeah, do you have an opinion on that? Uh, not necessarily as a reporter. Mm-hmm. 
the sort of uh, the bile that some craft beer drinkers have for AB InBev and then the ones that they've scooped up. You know, I remember there was a lot of cinnamon that turned against Wicked Weed, Mm -hmm. which was a huge darling Mm -hmm. of the craft brewing movement. And now people say, I will not buy any AB InBev products. Do you have an opinion on that as a reporter or just as a craft beer fan? Um, As a reporter, it is very interesting to watch the business angle because with the um, the amount of resources it has, it is very true that AB can go in and they can undersell these new craft breweries at prices below those that other craft breweries do. And right. there is a legitimate concern in the industry about that. Now, AB, of course, is going to counter, hey, that's business. We're, we're getting customers. We're selling at those prices. Um, but and econ- I, economies of scale, too. Exactly. Right. That's, that's the whole point in, in, in buying up or in becoming part of a larger corporation. Um, uh, but I, I absolutely get the concern among craft brewers and craft beer drinkers that they're going to be uh, out, outpriced, uh, even though they can't really bring their prices down much more. Um, uh, among just drinkers, look, there are people who are passionate about this. The craft brewing movement evolved from uh, from a, hey, this beer is different to, this beer is different in the sense of who makes it and how much it is a part of the community. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I... I get when people – I mean, I, personally, I'm not sure I get the absolute passion that led to the um, Viking funerals for 10 Barrel when uh, it was sold in Oregon. I mean, you saw literally videos of people burning their beers and shooting them out into the ocean. Oh, jeez. Um, uh, th- that, was, that was a little beyond what, what, I, what I was expecting. But, but I think when people say, I'm a, I'm a craft beer drinker, that does connote I'm drinking from the local business. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I get. I mean, when people say I won't drink any AB anymore, I don't stand up and say, you're an idiot. I, right. I think they're allowed to have that opinion. Sure. I mean, uh, of the range of opinions that are available – that one is certainly not unreasonable, and I think what it does is it connotes uh, a certain almost brand proposition that you want to espouse about yourself. You mm-hmm. know, so it, it's not so much about the beers. The beers are all still as good as you remember them. You know, if you're drinking, you mentioned Ten Barrel, or I, you know, I don't know, Golden, Breckenridge, yeah, yeah, Breckenridge so, for a yeah, local so. example. I was going to say Golden Road because mm-hmm. I was just out in L.A. recently and I saw them sort of everywhere, and they were kind of pioneers in L.A. But it's I don't know it the the industry is at a weird point, and sometimes it annoys me that craft beer culture gets really far up its own ass. And, and it can be, and, and you've seen all of these articles, or at least I have, that uh, that you know craft beer is destroying itself, not just by being uppity, but by creating triple IPAs and by creating pastry stouts that are thirteen percent, and that you're pushing people away. I actually tend to disagree with that. I think the I more too, yeah. that that craft beer experiments, um, the more it draws in people, and the more it draws loyalists. And I think the people who look at a pastry stout and say, "I'm not going." drink craft beer because of that are just looking for an excuse to to not drink craft beer because guess what those amber ales those golden ales they're still out there you can find them so it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive exactly go go get an upsloped uh uh, upslope pilsner yeah go go get an upslope craft lager Mm -hmm. right I mean, lager, thank you. Um, that you know, that's a damn fine beer. That mm-hmm. and it's you know to a point, it's beer flavored beer. Beer stat lager house does an amazing slow pour pills. Try that. Just see what that's like. 
that's different, you know, but that, again, beer-flavored beer. Right. I mean, Upslope's a fantastic example. They have their, their craft lager. They also had a, uh, a beer they put out this winter, uh, a sour made with Bellaton cherries. And, yeah, that's going to throw away the people, uh, scare away the people who, who don't like that. But it was fantastic, just like their craft lager is fantastic. Right. And you can make both. Is there anything that annoys you right now about craft beer culture? <sighs> is there anything that annoys me about craft beer culture? I, I don't I don't know that. No. I mean, I, I can't think of one thing off the top of my head. I, I guess if there's anything that annoys me, um, boy, that was a really long-winded way to get around to this. It would be <laughs> the constant churn of beers. And I think it's wonderful to see breweries so often coming out with new beers. But they've also killed off a lot of my favorites. I have this debate mm-hmm. with the guys who own uh, River North Brewery, for example. When the hell are you bringing back Hoppenberg, which is their Belgian-style double IPA. To me, it was the single best beer made in Colorado, and when they took it off regular rotation, I said, you killed my baby. And and so I know, as as I see that, others look at kind of favorites that are probably going away, too. So that's the only thing. Breweries should should at least have a regular slate of of beers that they they can bring back. Um, But that said, I love trying the new stuff, too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... And I talked to a liquor store owner, and they said that is a hard thing for them. Because craft beer drinkers very fickle, you know, mm-hmm. so always, tr- you know, sort of trophy hunting. And if you're not trophy hunting, the novelty is really what draws them in. So they, they end up with a bunch of stuff that's sort of no longer popular. They said this is a real problem when it comes to pumpkin beers, too, mm. because you, you need it's a real like threading the needle kind of exercise where you have to buy enough to satisfy it. But once that demand ends, it falls off a cliff. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. After after October thirty first, nobody drinks a pumpkin beer. And frankly, <laughs> I've noticed in recent years, not as many breweries are making pumpkin beers anymore. And no. I think that's because in a lot of ways, uh, the first rounds of pumpkin beers have seemed to grow old. Hey, throw cinnamon in there, throw nutmeg in there, mm. boom. You know, now people are looking for that new one, and maybe some people aren't willing to chase after that that new taste. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, rest in peace to a couple of beers that used to be on regular rotation for me. One was Sun Drenched by. Uh, uh, Denver Beer Company. I oh, love yes. that. Uh, hoppy wheat. So good. Uh, and now, I don't know if they even make that anymore at all. Mm-hmm. And then another one out at Chaluna Brewing in uh, Stanley Marketplace in Aurora. They had a Tamarindo Goza that used to be on all the time. And they said, we moved that to seasonal. And I said, why? You guys are <laughs> killing me. And it's, it's because somebody else doesn't have that reaction as you do. Yeah. I mean, you almost need that reaction, which means you're going to have your, your, your loggers, your pilsners, uh, your IPAs. I mean, the mm-hmm. things that have dedicated drinking groups. And, and then you're going to have people just rotating between the others. I think especially with sours. I mean, uh, other than maybe New Belgium's La Folie and, and Odell's Freak, you don't have sours that stick around forever because no. people are always looking for something new in that area. Yeah, I think that's interesting uh, that you bring that up. I, I remember drinking La Folie back in like 2003. And I'm going, what is this? Like, I think they made it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but sours are one of those things that uh, it takes a while to come around to. And once you sort of get it, mm-hmm. and I got it at Cascade Barrel and Brew House up in Portland. <laughs> that's an easy place to get it. <laughs> yeah. But all of a sudden, like, I had them explain it to me. You know, almost having someone who can walk you through and explain it really, really helps, which is why I think reporting like yours is really helpful. People, they obtain a vocabulary. You know, to be able to sort of understand what they're drinking a little bit more, and then that becomes more fun. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 sours, of course, are uh, generally still a love it or hate it proposition. Oh, you know? sure. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna have people that, <laughs> that 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 smell it and say forget it. And you, and I know people who don't drink beer but drink sours. Um, or don't drink other beer, I should say, but but drink sours, um, because it's such a unique taste like that. Um, but I think it's all part of the the flavor spectrum, which is which is you know kind of summarizing the whole conversation. Which is what I love about craft beer is that it's yeah. got something for everyone. And 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 I love kind of pushing the envelope on. Things. I mean, one of my favorite beers last year was a, a combination of a, a Belgian quad and an imperial, a barrel-aged imperial stout that Spangalang did. Yeah, and I would have never dreamed that would have worked, and it worked more perfectly than I could imagine. But those are the kind of things that, that are wonderful to see out there. Um, sours are, are, are just like that. Other big beers are just like that. And if you don't like them, you know, move on to something else. But, uh, but I, I applaud the brewers who are pushing the envelope and doing things that nobody else is doing. Well, well, yeah, it's funny. When uh, I saw you at Denver Beer Festivus, you asked me sort of what was good, and I said, you got to get down to Cerebral. And you said, oh, yeah, they're Pilsner, right? And I go, no, I didn't know they, they were doing a Pilsner <laughs> right now. But what's funny is for a brewery like Cerebral that's kind of pushing the envelope and is really big in the hazies and all that, uh, the fact that they were doing a Pilsner and that was kind of the buzz of, of the show mm-hmm. is wild. But it was the cinnamon vanilla sour that they're doing the thornless yes which i actually did go back i think it had some berries in it too yes. but yes um, yeah. and i did go back and try that it was it was very interesting yeah um, it's yeah, it, so. and and you're drinking you go i don't know how to feel about this it's like watching a tarantino movie <laughs> 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 yes, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are times you put something in your mouth and, and you're like, wait, what, what, what did I just put in here? Um, I think one of the, the more interesting places that, that I'm doing, that I found that with lately is Dos Luces Brewery, um, which oh, is yeah, down yeah. at Broadway. And, and for those who've never been there, it's a fascinating place that makes two kinds of beer, pulque and chica. And these are, and, and I'm going to get mixed up which is which. These are Mexican, uh, and Peruvian traditional drink styles that are actually not traditional beer styles, but, uh, the folks at Dos Luces make them uh, with barley to to make them more of a beer, and they also taste nothing like beer. It's almost like kind of a, a fruit soda mixed with a beer that has all of these tropical flavors to it. Um, and as I sat there and I, I drank them with the brewer, I, I thought to myself, "Okay, I don't know that I would have ever been attracted to this, but now that I've got a chance, th- these are great. They're not yeah. what I'm going to drink every day, but they, that's the kind of weird stuff you find out there." Well, I, at Festivus again, uh, birthday. Cake barley wine was done by uh, Blue Moon. And we drank that. It was like drinking straight birthday cake, which was too weird. Um, but hey, more power to him. You've alluded to this uh, earlier in the conversation, but it sounds like you've sort of worked all over. Can you take me through the journey? You said you went to college in Northwestern. Yeah, I went to college uh, in suburban Chicago. My um, entire family is from there. So oh, okay. my yeah. uncle used to live in Evanston right by Golf Mill. Oh, yes. So. yes. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, I, yes. There's not a lot of direct connections with Evanston, per se. No. They're just usually Chicago. Well, yeah, no, my grandma uh, was from Skokie, and so that's where my mom and uncles grew up. Uh, my dad's from Park Ridge. So, you know, I know that whole area really, really well. Old Orchard Mall and all that. But is that where you're from? No, I'm originally from Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. Um, I grew up there and uh, went to Northwestern just because it was the, the top-rated journalism school in America, and I really wanted to, to have that kind of a, is launching me into the field. Um, but after after school, I went to uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, to work for the Southwest Times Record. This is a this is the way that journalism used to work. You would start sure. out in smaller towns and work your way up. Um, it doesn't it doesn't quite do that so much anymore. Spent nearly two years there. Went to Anderson, South Carolina, and spent 
spent about three and a half years at the Anderson Independent Mail, which was a, a wonderful uh, small town paper. Uh, really got to know uh, the South Carolina area through that. Came out in late 2000 to Colorado Springs. Uh, worked at the Gazette for seven and a half years, six of it covering local government and politics and beer. Uh, and then I moved up to take over the uh, legislative bureau for it at the start of the 27, okay. 2007 session. Were um, you embedded at the Capitol then? I was. Like I with Lynn Bartles and the whole yes, Capitol crew? Yes, exactly. They, they they sat at a desk across from me. In fact, I've, I've now worked for three different papers at the Capitol, and I've moved a total of about 10 feet because I sat at three <laughs> different seats. Um, uh, after the 2008 session, before the DNC, uh, joined on with the Rocky Mountain News, thinking that was going to be the uh, the last job of my career. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Oh, wait. <laughs> that was 08. So I got seven and a half months there before the paper closed um, and then was lucky enough that the Denver Business Journal uh, had a place for me to fall into. And I have been here since uh, February of 2009. Wow. Congr- or March 2009. Yeah. So congrats on almost 10 years here. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's been exciting. It's uh, it's been, you know, I've never done business reporting per se before. I'd always been a government reporter. Sure. And so I'm still doing government, uh, doing government only focused on business, um, which is wonderful to never cover social issues again. Um, uh, and then uh, and then learning a lot about the other industries that I'd never gotten a chance to cover before. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. And going back to the Rocky for a minute, the reason I knew what year it closed is it closed the same year as my wedding. Oh. And my mom put together like this scrapbook uh, of the year for me and my wife. It's very nice, uh, like really well done. And she included like the the final front page of the Rocky. And like I love the Rocky. I was a subscriber even like in through college. So in the early 2000s, I, I was a Rocky guy, not a Denver Post guy. So if one of them was going to fold, it's really sad that it was the Rocky. But Yeah, well, you know. I was sad, too, since that was where I was working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I appreciate I, I still appreciate all the people who, who 10 years later talk about how much they remember the Rocky. And, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was just a short period. But, I mean, I would, I would do it all over again, even knowing the way it was going to end. Wow. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a great experience. And, frankly, that's how I caught the eye of Neil Westergaard, the – uh, the editor here without uh, having worked there. I don't know that I would have ever ended up at the Denver Business Journal. Well, not to sound like too much of a bougie creep here, but uh, <laughs> Neil Westergaard had the locker next to my dad at Lakewood Country Club, so my dad knew Neil pretty well. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, okay, first Evanston and, and now the Neil thing. This is, a, this is a very small world we're running in here. The, the, yeah. the more that, that we sort of – the longer I do PR in this town, the more I realize how small it actually is. You'll talk to someone, and, and if they say, hey, do you know whoever? I'm, like, surprised if I don't know them at this point, <laughs> which is pretty weird. Right, and, and I don't know that that's going to stay the same with forever with all the new people that are coming in here, but right. Denver is, is a town that kind of values people that have been here for a long time, even if there's a ton of us newcomers that are jumping in. Right. So uh, the fact you've been doing journalism now for how many years? Is twenty four since I graduated. Twenty four. Yeah. What drew you to it? Um, writing. Period. In fact, when when I decided in high school that I wanted to go into journalism, I was I was writing for the the school paper, but that was you know four times a year. It wasn't a passion of mine. I just liked writing, and I figured, well, I could try to become a novelist or a professional poet, and uh, I was smart enough even in high school to know that wasn't going to work. Uh, and so and so I saw a. Career 
career that would allow me to write every day. And so I think I was drawn more by the chance to write and I've become, you know, I, I've fallen in love with the chance to report and, you know, actually consider myself uh, as much of an educator as I am a writer at this point. Sure. You know, putting I, stuff out there that hopefully people can learn from and form their own opinions on. Yeah, I, I think that's really valuable. And what's funny is I write every day, too. Uh, I do it in a slightly different way. I mean, I've moved into advocacy, obviously. But when I was in graduate school, I was in speech communication, and it was really reading heavy and really writing heavy. And I met my wife there. She was she could read. She's a voracious reader. I like reading. I like it just fine. I prefer to write. She hated the writing part. So I ended up editing all of her papers and it was a thing where I got to write every day too. And I still write every day. So it's so funny to hear that you can apply it in different ways in that regard. And, do you ever still do like fiction or poetry or anything? Uh, not really. Now I have written two books. Um, both are, both are nonfiction books. Uh, 2011, I wrote Colora- uh, Mountain Brew, a guide to Colorado's breweries. 2016, I did. I bought a copy of that. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and in 2016, I did uh, Colorado excursions with history hikes and hops, uh, which is a 30 day travel guide to the state, stopping each day at one historic site, one natural site, and one drinking site, uh, <laughs> which are my three favorite things in the world. But I think. Also, uh, the three things that really most define Colorado, kind of its its rugged history, its beautiful scenery, and its incredible uh, creation scene for food and beverages here. So, um, so it's it's not fiction that I write anymore, but it's it's just kind of that lighter, more fanciful traveling uh, sure. that I like to do. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm taking a couple years off uh, to really just be a dad here for a little while. But um, I, I'm hope to get back to that and 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 write more books in the future as well. Because our kids are just about the same age we're, yes we're yeah talking... my, my 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 kids are four and a half and three and so uh, <laughs> it's, it's 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 a time period when i need to spend a lot of time around them yeah mine are four and two and a half yes, so there yeah. you go what are how many months apart are they 17 and okay mine are 20 okay yes yes <laughs> so it's a uh, yeah so, so you also went for the um once we get out of diapers we're never going back theorem. pretty yes, much yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> people are like oh you got two under two you got two in diapers it's like well you know what i'm already doing diapers <laughs> i'm just doing more diapers now right Right, right, so, exactly. I mean, what's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we we are really excited about the days when they'll be playing together and occupying each other. Those haven't happened yet, but I hear they come at some point. So, <laughs> um, yeah, mine are getting there, but I find I have to be a referee more often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And and it's like because the younger one isn't quite sure how to play properly, and then the older one gets a little butt hurt about it, and you go, okay, can you two just be cool for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> Like just go to go to separate corners for just five minutes, but no, they're up in each other's business all the time. There's a there's a quote that I really like, and I think applies to me quite often because writing can be torturous, especially on days when it's not coming. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, and I, I can't remember who this is attributed to, but I heard Bill Simmons say it. He said, "I don't like writing; I like having written." <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 actually not not a bad thing. I mean, for for both of the books, I, I think it was one thing to pound out the chapters. It was far more fun to look back on them and maybe you yeah. know make make changes, but to have seen what I put down. And and I think after you do any major project, your reaction is always, "How the hell did I do that?" Yeah. Um, because you know you look at it and think that's that's a that's a mass that I just dumped there. Um, I, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I I like the creative process and I like thinking about different ways that I can tell a story um, but at the same point I, I like having told that story and getting reaction to it in some ways more sure 
There's a a scene in a show long since canceled, only lasted one season, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. Yes, I actually watched that. It's fantastic. Yes. One of the episodes, they finally get the first episode up of their stupid late night show, right? Mm -hmm. And the clock reaches zero as the show ends, and then it starts over again for a week. And Matthew Perry knows he has to write again. Yes, yes. And I, I know that feeling. Like, I... Does that dread ever creep in for you working where you're writing pretty much every day where all of a sudden you finish an article and you go, oh, God, all right, what's next? You know, not really. Um, really? I, and, and, and the well, that's reason, why you're a pro. <laughs> the reason is because, you know, say like I've just knocked out a, a cover story, which can tend to be, you know, 2,000, 3,000 words or so. Sure. Um, and and I, I now realize that that is off my plate. That has taken a substantial amount of time. And it's clearly important to me because I've spent that much time on it. Um, but I now can work on those six or seven other things that I had to put aside. So there's a little bit of excitement when I finish a major project, not about, oh, I have to write again, but to think, oh, I get to do something else. And and you reference, you know, me covering six plus beats here. The fun thing about it is that means I don't have to write the same thing every day. I mean, even in covering the legislature, where I do write about the legislature every day for four months, I'm <laughs> writing about different things. I'm writing about different bills they're putting out there and different strange or sometimes competent ideas that are coming up uh, at the Capitol. And so, um, so yeah, I don't know. No, I, I, I like writing every day. Well, and I suppose that's a little bit different, too, than trying to generate like a comedy sketch show, right, right? Where, where it comes from really deep within you, mm-hmm. whereas the, the sort of conveyor belt of ideas and things that happen never stop. And you go, OK, here it comes. I'm going to write about this. It's done. There's another thing coming right behind it, you know, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, you have to pull from within this to generate the content. That's excruciating because I've written a daily comedy website. I did that in my past, Mm. and I'd finish an article and go, okay, I'm out of ideas again. Now you've got to be funny tomorrow, just Again. like you were today. Yeah, and, and I think if I were just writing books one after another, I would have to yeah. do the same thing. You almost, when you're doing that or writing comedy uh, or even writing speeches, you have to go for a more visceral reaction. And the great thing right. or maybe the bad thing about journalism is that I don't have to get a visceral reaction. I need to put an article out there, and I, at some point in every article, I want to make you say, oh, I didn't know that, or right. huh. That's what's happening. But that's not the same as ha ha or I'm soaking myself in tears. I just need a slight reaction from you. Uh, a comedy writer, I can't even imagine what that's got to be like. Right. It's uh, You want people to walk away having having felt more elucidated, right? They go, oh, wow, okay, that was worth my time. I'm glad I read that. I know that. I can file that away now. And people tend to move on from that. You know, it's not necessarily, and this may be different if you're writing like a cover story or something, that you probably want to have a longer lasting impression, right? Right, yeah, I do. And I want people to, to walk away from that. I want them to think more about it and think, oh, that's that's something I, I need to think about beyond today. But so yeah, that and those those can be a, a bit laborious. And those are the when I'm writing a cover story, those are the days my wife knows I'm not I might not be home till midnight because oh, I'm gonna geez. sit here and I'm going to go over this over and over and over again and make sure this comes out in just the way it needs to come out. Um, but for a regular story, e- even one that's the very important break news story, I could bang those out in an hour because there's a more natural flow that comes with that where you don't have to double and triple down on the point. You can just say, this happened, boom. And that's your fastball. I mean, Mm -hmm. essentially, as a professional writer who writes every day, you can reach back and know that it's going to be there and you can crank out a story like that. Right, right, exactly. No, I mean, I get that. 
One thing that's way different now compared to when you started in journalism is now it seems like there are multiple content streams that you have to be aware of. You know, Twitter and Facebook, the whole, all the various social channels. How much is that actually enhancing the work that you do and how much of it is detracting from the work that you do? I would say used correctly, and I don't think Facebook is, is – it's a non-entity in terms of the overall work that we do. Um, okay. It's just a place that I use to put up articles. Um, uh, it's a promotional platform. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Um, Twitter – I would say enhances it slightly more than it, uh, it it gets in the way. Yes, it is something more that you have to do. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those people. I, I don't air my opinion on anything on Twitter, um, and I don't have conversations on Twitter. I know there are some people who spend their lives doing that. I don't. I use Twitter for two things. One, as, as you said, a promotional platform. Here's my article. If you don't want to read it, you don't have to. But if you do, here's the link to it. Um, and the second thing I use Twitter for is, you know, when, when you're a one-man band covering the Capitol, as most of the organizations up there are. There are sometimes two or three things going on at the same time that you want to wow. follow. So instead of you know concentrating only on one thing, I will sit in my office, listen to a hearing, and watch the Twitter stream because I know there are reporters in two other hearings that I want to know about. And wow. so uh, I treat Twitter a little bit like the crawl at the bottom of a sports game. Um, okay. It's not something that's going to, um, to to make you think, oh my goodness, but it's the thing that's going to give you the basic information and if I can use that basic information and in some cases if I get basic information out to people who aren't going to read my thousand word story that's still a help in educating people that's an interesting way of putting it and I I don't know that I've had a conversation with someone who uses Twitter in exactly that way but that sounds like an incredibly useful tool so (laughs) yeah and I I don't know if that's what most people view it as but I mean that's that's what happens with the realm of social media somebody creates it and we all use it in our own way Twitter for me is a platform for me to retweet. Uh, you've heard of the subgenre weird Twitter? No. Okay. <laughs> don't don't worry about it. Go on my Twitter feed. You'll see a bunch of really strange retweets. Uh, okay. it's, it's it's non sequitur sort of absurdist comedy, but <laughs> uh, we all cultivate our own feeds in that way. So um, you've covered government now in you said Arkansas, South Carolina, South Carolina, Colorado Springs, and now here in Denver. Yes. Given that the Denver Business Journal has a relationship with other business journals across the country, what have you found that differentiates the way Colorado governs versus other states? I think it is um – it is a cleaner government, and and I say that with you know almost a, 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 an aim of frustration. Um, like, hey, you know, you know, I look, I, I went to college right outside of Chicago, so I was thinking <laughs> government coverage is, hey, who did the councilman have killed today? Um, but uh, but but in Colorado, there is for whatever reason a generally cleaner form of government. I mean, we we get apoplectic uh, about people who have, um, and I've seen this in the past, seemingly minor uh, conflict of interest at the legislature on things. I mean, sometimes we do have big issues like state representatives harassing every female lobbyist under the building. Um, but, right. um, but, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's a state where people come in, they do their jobs and leave. I, I think in some ways it's because people know it's a low-paying job um, and, yeah. and people are always working second jobs and so they don't have time to make this uh, a corrupt organization. They've got to feed their family in some other way. And we their- have term limits too, so you don't even have that long 
to sort of create this corrupt enterprise, right? Right, right. I mean, I mean, you're almost like pitching yourself for your next job from the day that you get elected <laughs> to something here in Colorado, which in itself is its own problem. Um, but that's what I find. Colorado is more straightforward. Um, and the other thing I found about Colorado is that even the intra-party fights can be more interesting than the R versus D fights elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I covered... Uh, city government in Colorado Springs for about six years, and people said, oh, it's going to be really boring. It's a one-party government. Well, no, no. The different flanks of the Republican Party have some pretty wide divisions in them in Colorado Springs, and, and what it led to was really interesting intellectual discussions about the role of government. And so I think uh, I think Colorado has, has a special place and that people think about that in, in different ways. When I interviewed Kyle Clark from Nine News, he gets accused of being a Republican shill all the time. And a Democrat shill all the time, which is sort of paradoxical. And he said, <laughs> that's actually great because I think that means I'm doing my job. And what I'll do is I'll take those two people and I will copy both of them on an email and I will write both of them. And I say, you've accused me of being a Republican. You've accused me of being a Democrat. You two figure it out, which I think is one of the most clever ways of doing that. Do you ever get accused of having bias? I, I think there is uh, an implicit belief in some people that we are uh, pro-business because we cover business community. Like you It's know, called the business journal. Yeah. I mean, we cover business issues. So, yes, not only do I cover only business issues, I think about them from a business lens. Uh, sure. But at the same point, uh, every time you're going to see a story about something that the business community, uh, quote unquote, hates, um, you're going to see an explanation of why somebody is running that bill, too. So, yeah, I mean... I, I think, in fact, I, I, I used to go on a, uh, a show on KUNC radio called Capital Conversations, um, and uh, and the the reporter who did the show once got someone writing to the, her saying, "Why are you bringing on this opinion from the business media? Like we are now the, the left wing or the right wing media, we're the business media." Um, but um, but I. You know, I, I try to brush that off. I mean, you you know how you go about your job. You know how you try to be as fair and honest as possible. And no, not everyone's going to get that. And frankly, 75 to 80 percent of the time, if somebody accuses me of a bias, I can look at their, what they're writing and I can see, well, you're accusing me of not having the bias you want. Uh, yeah. That, <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. I, I think too many people, in fact, go to an echo chamber these days. They go to media of their persuasion uh, on the left or the right. Uh, and I try to avoid those in general um, because I, I don't want to reinforce anything or, or, or see somebody who's constantly attacking or, or backing somebody. Um, so, um, yeah, I think some people look for that. And when I'm not that person, that's when I get accused of bias. Well, and I think we are in a really interesting and somewhat unnerving point in history when it comes to journalism, because, I mean, this comes from the top where you've got the president talking about how journalists are the enemy of the people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very dangerous proposition and one that I, I don't think I, I hope we don't go further down. But I'm, I'm sort of frightened of putting the toothpaste back in the tube. In your estimation, how do we get back to a place where media becomes more trusted? A lot of media is now not actually journalism, but it's punditry, right? And you've got people, and I remember this was true when I was in college. People didn't know the difference between an article and an editorial, mm -hmm. right? They, they didn't know when the paper was taking a, a position or simply covering an issue. Mm -hmm. In your estimation, given that you're in this industry, how do we start getting on a better road? 
I don't know that there is a simple solution to this, and and I I don't know that there's a simple solution, not because of the media, but because of what I just mentioned, what people want. I think sometimes uh, when people talk about trusting the media, they are talking about wanting their own opinion. I mean, the, the most trusted source in media in most polls is Fox News, and the most wow. distrusted source in media in most polls is Fox News. So that means <laughs> your tr- your idea of trusting the media is all about where you stand on the ideological spectrum. Um, and I, I think what we need is a change in rhetoric and a change in the conversation level in general where people are more willing to hear each other's opinions. And I think that's when media can be that middle ground and say, here's all the opinions you, you decide. Uh, but I think even in a lot of cases where the media puts it out there now, people don't care. They don't want to hear the other side's opinion. Um, I worry that, uh, that, that social media – as much good as it has done, and it has informed people and drawn in people who otherwise wouldn't be educated in a lot of ways, um, I worry that it allows this creation of an echo chamber more and more. I mean, back in the in the 1950s, if you didn't like the local paper, well, you'd have to go and talk about it with your friends. You'd have to make these efforts to get out and do this. Now, if you don't like a certain media source, well, you just ignore it and you go in with the all right or all left or, or whatever you want to hear. And I think people can disappear down those rabbit holes. And as long as they keep doing doing that, we're going to have a harder time finding middle ground and, yeah. and finding a, a place for the media and society. That's tough, man. I, and what, what you just described reminds me of why I'm annoyed with the platform Pandora, because Pandora is like, oh, you like this song? Here's like 10 more songs that sound exactly like it. And it feeds me a never ending stream of stuff that I already know that I like. And right, I go, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not opening myself up to anything here. And I'm, and I'm interested in expanding my musical horizons. To that point, I love spending time with people I disagree with mm-hmm. because I'm always going to learn something from them. And it may recontextualize my own beliefs, even if I don't believe them. Like you can entertain a thought or an idea without accepting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just having exposure to that will, I don't know, broaden and deepen us all, in my opinion. So Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, but the, the, there's no simple solution to tell people, hey, open your minds a little bit more. And, um, yeah, you just come off like kind of a jerk. If right, you're right. Now, now, you're, now you're proselytizing, and, and, and people on, <laughs> on both sides disagree with you. And hey, then like Kyle said, maybe then you've found the proper middle ground. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. Um, looking ahead, if someone were listening to this and they say, I want to get involved in journalism – a much different road as you alluded to now Mm -hmm. because you know you started at a small paper i remember when i was at csu some of our tv folks would go off and be anchors in like pocatello idaho oh yeah you know or whatever and and god they'd be making like 12 bucks an hour or something too oh yeah um with with the hope that you know you eventually level up you move up to a better market better market better market do you know how it works now? How, like you said, it's different now. How does it work now? Well, I mean, there still is the ability to go in, start at the small town paper, kind of work your way up. What's tough is that there aren't as many jobs higher up on the chain right now. And so uh, a lot of people will will not wait around for that move. And for some people, there's not that opportunity to move up. I mean, you, you used to expect that, hey, if I work hard here, I'm going to get to this bigger paper. I'm going to get to this bigger paper. That That's not the case, especially because a lot of large papers now holler 
hire people straight out of college or maybe on their second job um, because, you know, then they can pay them under union wage scales, which usually don't kick uh, in until you have five years in the business. Um, Jeez, okay. <laughs> so. Um, Boy, that's, that's a real craven lesson in economics, isn't it? Right. I mean, so, so, I mean, what do I recommend? Well, be the standout star of your college class, get in at the big paper, never leave. No, I mean, you look for the opportunities that are out there. The good thing is that now there are so many different options. I mean, we have uh, 11 or 12 uh, publications that cover the Capitol on a near daily basis at this point, and, mm-hmm. and they didn't all used to be there. So, you know, where it used to be, which paper do I want to be involved with? Now you can look at a site like Chalkbeat and say, do I want to cover education? Or a site like Colorado Politics, say, do I want to just cover politics? I mean, if you have a passion, explore that with, with those specific sites. Um, if you want just general daily journalism, uh, try try wherever you can. The other thing is don't get anchored to a city. I mean, there's not as many opportunities in Colorado these days to move up the chain like there used to be. Um, but there is if you move around the country. And and I've noticed that papers still are, are looking all around. I mean, we've, we've done that with a lot of our recent hires. We've brought them in from other states. So, uh, so start somewhere you don't think you're going to be forever. Look, I'm not going to lie. I didn't expect to go to Fort Smith, Arkansas after college. <laughs> that was a pretty big cultural difference from Chicago. Um, uh, and go I, on. And, and I knew that I was not going to be there forever, but I spent nearly two years there. Um, some of it I did not enjoy. Uh, a lot of things I did learn there. And sometimes you just have to take that and say, look, I am not going to be where I want to be to start with, but I'm willing to learn and then to move up. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson too. And one of the things I always tell people, so I'll go back and talk to the graduate students or the undergrads at my college and because I'm actually using my degree, which is not always true of everyone in liberal arts. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say the challenging thing and the amazing thing is the challenge is that there aren't as many of these sort of brass rings out there maybe as there used to be. Mm-hmm. The And especially in journalism, the industry has contracted quite a bit. I mean, I've covered at length on this show the death of class- classified advertising and what that did to the industry. Yes. Uh, just hollowed it out entirely. Uh, not entirely, but uh, pretty substantially. But that means there's opportunity for you to create. The barriers to entry to create anything that you want are so low. I mean, this podcast, people go, man, I've always wanted to create a podcast. I go, just go do it. Right, yeah. Like, if you're interested in doing some journalism, you know, start attending city council meetings. You know, put the blog out there. You have all these platforms now that are free to distribute your content and get them on. You build up some uh, at-bats doing that. I mean, the the best way of doing this is by doing it every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the blogger podcast idea is an important one. I mean, there are there are hideous blogs and podcasts. Oh, God, Don't get yes. me wrong. Um, but if you are passionate about a subject, go for it. Start your own blog. I mean, that's what I essentially did with uh, with beer, although that was at the prodding of my editor in Colorado Springs. Um, but that is uh, something that has kept going. Um, the blog is what caught the attention of my publisher. It caught the attention of a TV producer who produced the very, very short-lived TV show Colorado Brews on Rocky Mountain PBS. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and so, you know, if you do it well, you can, you can simply point to it and say, here, take a look and you tell me if I do it well. You can find freelance jobs from that. You can, totally. you can get into the industry. I mean, honestly, when, when I go to uh, beer festivals and to beer gatherings, I mean, 90, 80 to 90% of the people who have press passes there are not your traditional media. Uh, I'm kind of the rarity because it says Denver Business Journal on my press pass, but a lot 
lot of them are websites that just started out from someone's basement. That doesn't mean that if you start a website tomorrow, you're going to get press passes to the Great American Beer oh, Festival. No way. But if you grow it and you show a competency and you show the people in the industry interested in it, and that goes for other industries as well, you will catch attention. So yeah, I think that's something you just have to put in time and be willing to accept as well that you may not get paid for it. <laughs> you alluded to something earlier, and we got to wrap up, but uh, and it was, you know, people go, I just want to write about baseball. Mm-hmm. And then they write about baseball. And I talked to Thomas Harding on this show who, you know, covers the Rockies for MLB.com. And he told me his schedule. The thing about when you are covering something or working in an industry that you previously did as a leisure activity, you are then turning some of your favorite things into a job. Mm-hmm. I remember I was reviewing TV for a while. And it got to a point where I'm like, I don't even want to watch TV anymore. Like, I, I can't. And I, I just wasn't wired for that. Do you ever get burned out covering beer in that way? Because, you know, I go to a beer festival, and I'm probably going to catch a buzz at that thing. And I can't imagine having to turn around and then write about that professionally afterward. Does that ever burn you out? Not really. There are times uh, when I've gone to festivals and instead of turning around something the next day, uh, it takes me a week and a half to two weeks to turn something around. Um, A lot of that is actually balancing out. I just spent five days immersed in the Great American Beer Festival. I need to spend a commensurate amount of time immersed in my family right now. Um, um, But no, not really. I mean, if you truly, truly love something, I think you're going to find a way to to work something in there. So I I may not be writing about beer all the time. and And what I'm bad at actually is after i've been to a festival been immersed in something i'm not going to go home and read beer magazines i'm going to read them in the times when i'm not immersed in something (laughs) Um, even though i love them sometimes it is a bit overloading but um but no i mean if you if you're really fascinated with something uh, i think you find a way to to find that 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 time to 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 care for it and to uh and to keep going yeah okay i think that's good all right, Ed. Well, this is the time in the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you online at the DBJ? Plug anything you want. Okay. Um, let's see. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, three different places uh, at ECLoverDenBiz, E-S-E-A-L-O-V-E-R-D-E-N-B-I-Z. That's my work account. Uh, my account for my first book uh, is MTN Brew book. Uh, my account for my second book is CO Excursions HHH. Um, I also have Facebook pages for all three of those, for Mountain Brew, for DBJ Ad Sea Lover, and for Colorado Excursions with History, Hikes, and Hops. Um, and uh, if you want to check out my blog, which is not written nearly as much as it was before I had two kids, uh, just <laughs> go to beer, just plug in Beer Run Blog, and it usually is the first thing that will come up in Google. Alright, fantastic. Well, I will have links to all of that on the John of All Trades companion blog piece. Go to jonofalltrades.us. You'll find a picture of Ed and myself. You'll hear this whole episode and links to everything that Ed just mentioned. Uh, Ed, this was a pleasure. Uh, I, I look forward to running into you again at beer festivals and possibly at breweries, and then uh, I'm sure we'll intersect professionally. So continued success to you. Possibly at the Capitol as well. Thank you for having me on here today, John. That wraps up episode 206 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thanks to Ed Sealover for being on the show and for doing exceptional work at the Denver Business Journal with a variety of beats that he's covering. Man, I could go for a beer. What is in my fridge? I think I have Pivo Pills. That's a great one out of Firestone Walker in California. One I like. Wish I could plug a Colorado one, but what's in your fridge is in your fridge. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T. 
www.com.com.us. Training, content, engagement, podcasting. Those are the four pillars of my business. If you're looking to tell your business's story in a new way, I can help you do that. D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. If you're doing anything online, as I am, 4Degrees is the backbone upon which I rest my business. Building a website, doing social media promotion, online advertising, campaign messaging, 4Degrees has got you covered. I cannot recommend their business highly enough. Zach, the founder of 4Degrees, is a great friend of mine, so check them out. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with every other podcatcher that's out there, I imagine. Just search John of All Trades, and when you get there, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to your listening device. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, that would be aces. I'm back here next week with a brand new episode. First jobs go up on Monday on Facebook and LinkedIn. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. So, until I hear you back here again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.